What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Church, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. We're going to finish up the book of Joel this morning. We're in Joel chapter 3, and we're going to read the conclusion, verses 17 to 21. As you look up that passage in your, your Bible, and don't be ashamed to use the table of contents, Joel's a little bit hard to find back in the back of the Old Testament, but let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word as we recall and believe that God's Word is inspired of God, it is inerrant in all that it teaches, it is infallible in its very nature. So what we're reading here this morning is not the words of man but the, this is the very word of the only true and living God for us and to us. Joel chapter 3, let's finish this book together, verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. 200 years before the Reformation, Reformation 1517, right, Martin Luther? 200 years before that, there was a young woman sitting alone in what we would probably think of as a prison cell, to be completely honest, but it wasn't a prison for her. A Julian of Norwich chose to live the life of an anchoress, is what it was called. It was basically a monastic life of prayer and meditation and contemplation on Christ. She chose this life for herself. And in 1373, the plague, the Black Death, swept through the village of Norwich. And so Julian was like almost half of the people in that city that she almost died. Half the people did die as the plague came through and Julian almost did herself and as she was kind of swooning halfway between life and death in this near death situation with this terrible disease um, she had an experience of of God's grace she had a a powerful experience that she described as being uh, just the, the presence of God and she wrote it down she wrote down what she experienced um, in this year and this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, Julian's writings are the earliest known writing in the English language by any woman that we have extant. And so it's remarkable just for that reason alone. 
But what she wrote down in her vision is this comforting thought, and this is her most famous line. I'll just tell you the most famous line. She says, And all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. It's a comforting idea that God is sovereign no matter what happens. Even if the rest of the city dies, even if she dies, God is still good. And God is bringing the world to the culmination, this joyful and just conclusion that God would ordain for redemption history. Now, obviously, we have a couple things to disagree with. We don't take monastic vows. Uh, We don't do that. We would probably have some differences about the weight of visions and dreams and things like that. We can't necessarily fault Julian for not being a Protestant as she lived 200 years before Martin Luther came. But nevertheless, there's a part of me, and I hope there's a part of you, that wants her to be right. I I deeply want Julian to be right when she says all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. I want that for my life. I want that for my family. I want that for my children. I want that for this woe-be-gone nation that we live in. I look out at the craziness of the world and I say, God, I just pray that Julian would be right, that all will be well. And believe it or not, That's exactly what the prophet Joel is trying to convey to us in the conclusion of this book. Now, we've been studying Joel for several weeks together, but meanwhile, we're preparing, aren't we, for a much longer series in the book of Revelation, which we're going to begin next week. And actually, I have a few things to say towards the end of the sermon that are going to help us to prepare for that that longer study. But we still have this text in front of us today, and I want to do justice to this text as much as we're able to do. When we look back on the whole of the book of Joel, we've seen a little bit of everything. Remember, Joel starts off with this locust plague, so we have a natural disaster in the beginning of this book. There are a couple of times where this locust plague may even look like it portends to an invasion of Israel, perhaps by the hands of the Babylonians or the Assyrians. And so we've also seen the persecution of God's people. We definitely saw that in chapter 3 for sure as the sufferings of God's people are rehearsed in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And so we've even seen how our sin cuts us off from a relationship with God. And even as the locust plague uh, destroyed all of the crops and the flocks and, and the animals and the harvest, so also we found that human beings, we can't even make an appropriate sacrifice to God that would bring us back into relationship with Him. For that, we need Christ. And so Joel points forward to Jesus Christ. And all along in the book of Joel, we've also seen the great promises of the gospel, haven't we? We've seen reminders, for instance, in Joel 2.13, to return to the Lord for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And multiple times, Joel called us to repentance with his trumpeting a motif of calling the people to a solemn assembly to come back and to repent before their heavenly Father and their Lord God. And even last week in our text, Uh, we saw that Joel is offering to you and to me the refuge in the fortress and the safe haven that is God's grace. And so in this text, what Joel is going to do here is he's going to remind us that as God judges the world and brings all things to a joyful and a just conclusion, Julian will be right and all things will be well. They will. They'll all be well at the end when God brings history to its own resolution. So what I'd like to do this morning, I'm going to try to do three things, three slightly different things if you'll bear with me. First of all, uh, I want to spend the first third of the sermon this morning talking about this conclusion. I want to analyze the text 
that we have set out before us on the sacred desk, the pulpit this morning. We want to do justice to this particular text, so I'm going to try to explain it. Second of all, uh, after that, I want to begin to compare, as we're transitioning from Joel the prophet to John the apocalyptic writer, I want to compare what Joel does here as he concludes redemption history in Joel 3 to what John says in our secondary text, which we read from Revelation 21. So I'm going to begin drawing some bridges from Joel to Revelation. And then a third, after that, if we have time, and I hope we do, I want to say a few things that I think we've learned from studying the prophets that are going to help us in our study of Revelation when we begin that study in proper next week. So let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. Let's deal with this text first. It is a very important text. So first, let's analyze it. I have uh, four things to say about the conclusion of the book of Joel. There are four things that the prophet Joel uh, points our attention to, and they are as follows. Let's call these A, B, C, and D if you're taking notes. Uh, A, he's going to point us to the covenantal promises of our God. And we're going to go over each one of these, so don't worry. B, he's going to talk about the banishment of sin, the final concluding banishment of sin. C, he's going to talk about the renewal of the promised land. And then D, we're going to look at God's presence in Zion, God's presence amongst his people. So with that in mind, I hope you have your Bible open with me still. Uh, Let's begin in verse 17. We're looking at the covenantal promises of God. Listen to this, verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Pause there. So that you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That's the point of the book of Joel. Okay? If somebody's saying to me this morning, uh, we've done eight sermons in this book and I still don't understand what the point of the book is, here it is in so many words. Joel has written, so that you will know that the Lord is God. This is the purpose of everything that God does, by the way. This is the purpose not only of Joel, but of all of the prophets. This is the reason why God gave his law to us, even though we fail it so many times. This is the reason that God gives us the gospel in Jesus Christ. Everything, we might say, between the two covers of this Bible, between Genesis and Revelation, has one and exactly one main point, so that you and I will know that the Lord is is God. And this is not only exclusive to the prophet Joel. We see this throughout the prophetic literature. Let me just remind you of the book of Exodus for a moment. Book of Exodus, right? God is bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And as God is delivering his people from the cruel taskmaster of Pharaoh, God sends how many plagues? Do you remember? There's 10 of them. And they're pretty serious, aren't they? Pretty serious judgments. And every plague along the way, virtually at every stop, every dramatic instance, from Aaron throwing down his staff before Pharaoh, remember the staff becomes a snake, God says there was a point to that demonstration. Right? It's not magic tricks with Aaron, there was a point to that demonstration. It was so that you would know that the Lord is God. And so throughout all of the plagues, or at least most of them specifically, when the water turns to blood in Exodus 7.17, when the flies come upon the land in 8.22, very notably and relevant to our study in the book of Joel, when the locust plague, the eighth plague comes, God said there was a point to it. It's that so you will know that I am the Lord your God. And even the very moment when the Israelites are going through the Red Sea and God causes the sea walls to collapse on Pharaoh and his chariots, 
Even as they're going down and their noses go underneath the water for the last time, God says in that moment, that's when they're going to know that I am the Lord. In the book of Ezekiel, he says it 38 times. That's the reason he's giving his prophecy. I can just generalize and say here that not only was Joel about the same theme, but everything in your life, let's make this personal, Everything in your life happens for one reason, and that is so that you will know that the Lord is God. Wednesday night, we were sitting out on the front porch, and you, many of you have been to my house. We kind of live up on a hill, and we've got a kind of a busy street running down. Front porch is, is out looking over the, the hills. I can see almost over to Kevin's house if I'm trying. And on Wednesday night, did you see this? There was the most amazing rainbow over the city. Some of you saw that. That's great. And so we're sitting out on the front porch, and I'm trying to do catechism with Simone. We're going over questions 51 to 55, trying to memorize these. We can't even concentrate. Kelly and Sarai are sitting on the front porch swing, and there's this amazing rainbow. It's like on fire in the sky, glowing red hot, and it, it stood there for about an hour. I've never seen a rainbow last for that long before. And what was unusually amazing to us is we're sitting up here on the front porch looking down to all the cars, the busy cars going down our street, and we can see their faces. We're close enough to see their faces as they come over the hill. Every single one of them looked up and went like this. It was awesome. You say, why does God do that? Because he's getting your attention. The same reason he does everything in your life. All of the events and circumstances of your life are to point to one reality that you will know that he is the Lord your God. What do you mean by no? I mean no in every single way. That you would know him intellectually, that you would know him personally, that you would know him experientially in his grace in Christ through his Holy Spirit. And so Joel, as he's rounding out his prophecy here, he just wants you to be clear and me to be clear. The whole reason that he wrote the book is so that we will know that God is God. Okay? Second, or B, Joel emphasizes here the final banishment of sin. Now look at this. He says it twice in two different ways. In verse 17 and verse 19, Joel promises us that God is going to deal with the sin of this world finally and fully. Look at this. And Jerusalem, verse 17, Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall what? Never again pass through it. And then again, go down to verse 19. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Now, he doesn't just choose Egypt and Edom because they both start with E, but because they both have a role in persecuting Israel to its detriment in redemption history. We already mentioned Egypt was the place of slavery. Edom, by the way, did not give them safe haven as they were coming out of slavery and going into the promised land. Remember, they met with God at Mount Sinai, and then as they're trying to traverse up to the promised land in Numbers chapter 20, Edom refuses them safe haven, and that caused a skirmish between the people of God and, and to their neighbors that kind of persists throughout the history of the Old Testament here. But you get the idea here that Joel is promising that at some point in the future, sin will never again afflict the people of God. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. Because, because when I look out on this world, I, I am, I think, rightly disturbed by the amount of sin and violence and wickedness and illness that we see in this world. Are you disturbed? 
When you watch the news, does it bother you anymore? Is there a sense in which you're sick of this world and you kind of want to put it away? I feel that. Is there a sense in which this, this, this phrase, never again, appeals to you and you say, yes, I want that? probably haven't been praying hard enough. I'm confessing myself here that the war in the east between Russia and Ukraine would not spill over into other nations. Uh, we don't want that to happen. We don't want things to get worse than they already are. They're, also, they're already very bad uh, for many people, but we don't want it to get worse. And the potential there for it to get worse and to spill across international boundary lines is a real and present danger. And that bothers me. Likewise, it bothers me when I look out on this, this nation right here and I see a transgender ideology just consuming our children, our young ones, confusing them, disturbing them. I see people getting caught up in this from the universities and the public schools, even down to some of our smallest children. And it bothers me. I see this new Marxism stomping and formed ranks, stirring up racial hatred and disparagement among our people. I, I see all of this. I see even isolated incidents in the news that bother me. They just disturb me. We were watching the, the news the other day, and we heard about the murder in Memphis of this young Presbyterian woman. Did you know, did you know she was Presbyterian? This young woman, I think she was in her 20s, a teacher as far as I know. She was out for a jog in the morning, and somebody kidnapped her, threw her in a van, did whatever and then disposes of her body in a dumpster. Did you hear the story? Did you know she was Presbyterian? She's one of us. I'm talking about a young woman that goes to Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. That's a reformed, Bible-believing, evangelical church, just like us. She's one of us. And I see this, and there's a part of my heart that says, God, when are you going to say never again? Joel says, it'll happen. Trust me. C, the renewal of the promised land. Now, this is beautiful here. Look at verse 18. Look at your Bible. There's this promise that the land itself is going to be renewed. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Okay, so Joel says that the land itself is going to be renewed. Now, he's amplifying a theme that we've already noticed earlier in this book. If you go back to chapter 2 in the book of Joel, look at 2.25. There's already been promises that God is going to renew the damage that was done by the locust plague. For instance, 2.25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Notice the sovereignty of God in the sending of that plague. And here again, towards the end of the book, there's this, this new promise to restore and to renew the land. But this time it seems as though this promise is taking on eschatological proportions. What does eschatological mean? It's a fancy word that means end times -y. That's my definition. Just made that up. There's, there's eschatological proportions now to this renewal of the land. Notice, why do you say that? Well, first of all, it says in verse 18, in that day, which is key stock prophetic language pointing forward to the last day, right? The great day. He's not talking about Monday. He's not talking about October when the harvest comes again. This is, he's making a bigger promise here 
than just the crops aren't going to fail next year, as I think he's doing in chapter 2, verse 25. In 2.25, it almost seems like he's saying, don't worry, there's going to be food on the shelves in the grocery store. We're all going to be able to eat next season. But in 3.18, it almost seems like this promise of the renewal of the land takes on this kind of end timesy eschatological proportion here. And one of the reasons I say that is not only of the language of that day in verse 18, but also this image that he gives of this fountain coming forth from the house of the Lord. In other words, from the temple, the water is going, going to gush forth and it's going to water the valley of Shittim. Now we've seen something like that in the prophets elsewhere. Do you recall that in the book of Ezekiel chapter 47, there's also this spiritualized, conceptualized image of the temple in which water gushes forth, bringing grace and mercy and peace to the dry, arid land, right? And so here in Joel, um, he is promising that not only is the land going to be temporarily okay, like we're going to get through next harvest season, but there also seems to be this bigger promise of renewal of the land, even the creation order itself. Hold that thought, because we're going to come back to that when we look at Revelation here in just a moment. Okay. And then D, uh, certainly here, the point of the conclusion of Joel is that God promises his presence to the people of God. Look at verse 17 and then look again in verse 21. 17 says this, You shall know that I am the Lord who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And then again in verse 21, look at the last line of the book. Okay, You always want to end on a big rally. And so Joel's last line of his prophecy is that the Lord dwells in Zion. What question, what exactly is Zion? What is Zion? I see it all the time in the Psalms. What is it? Well, there's a little history to Zion. Zion was originally the hill that David conquered from the Philistines, from the Canaanites, in which he built what we call Jerusalem. Okay, so it's geographical territory. It's the hill on which the, later the fortress of Jerusalem would be built. And then uh, as David continues to build the city, Solomon, his son, then builds the great Solomonic temple. Later, the name Zion seems to be transposed, not just from the geographical hill of the city itself, but the temple then becomes something like a spiritual Zion. And then as we look through the prophets and the Psalms, the word Zion seems to take on greater and greater magnitude such that we can even say that Zion is all of Messiah's kingdom as he's going to come and he's going to reign, the reign of peace and glory, and majesty. And so here, what God is promising is not just he's going to dwell on this hill, okay? This is not henotheism like the pagans believing that there's a God of this hill and a God of this valley and there's a God that's over this sea and a God of this lake. That's not what's happening here. This is not henotheism. This is God promising that he's going to be very, very present to the people of Messiah's kingdom. And notice here, what does he say? He's going to dwell with them, not just visit them occasionally, but dwell with them personally. And so the book ends with this glorious promise that God is going to be with you and with me as the people of God. And so these are the four themes that Joel chooses to conclude his prophecy. Now, let's shift gears and let's make a comparison then, if we can, between what Joel has done and what John does in the apocalyptic description of heaven. So let's take our Bibles and flip them over now to Revelation chapter 21.
So what do we get here in Revelation 21? Well, surprise, surprise, the same four themes. The same four themes. How so? Well, let's look at them again one by one. First, the covenantal promises of God. There they are. John's heaven looks a lot like Joel's Zion, doesn't it? Look at this. 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. There it is. I will be your God. You will be my people. All things point to this one truth and this one great reality so that you will know that the Lord is God. See it? And notice that this time in John's apocalyptic picture of heaven, this announcement comes from the throne itself. Who's preaching here? The one on the throne. How do we know? Because it says in a loud voice so everybody can hear it. So it'll be unmistakable so the folks in the back, so the people out of the narthex can hear this too, that the Lord is God and He is the God of His people. And not only does it say to listen to it with the ear, but look at this, to behold it with the eye in verse 3. When the Bible says behold, it means something like see it with your eyes, but take it into the mind and all the way down into the heart so that you really get it. And what are we supposed to get? That God is going to be with His people. Again, there's this language of God will dwell with them. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And when scripture says that God is going to dwell with his people, we're not talking about some sort of theoretical sense in heaven. We're not just talking about some sort of remote, figurative type of sense here like the platonic forms where there's God out there and we have to live in the material world. It's not like that. What, What Revelation is promising here is that God is really going to be with his people. In the same way that God walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden, in the same way that Christ dwelt among the people of Galilee and walked on the dusty trails of Nazareth, in the same way that John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us, so really and truly will God's presence be manifest among his people. And so we see here the covenantal promises of God. And not only that, but these other same points that Joel makes John also makes. So let's go on then to the banishment of sin. Look at Revelation 21.8. It says, as for the cowardly. That's a sin, by the way, isn't it? It's It's a sin against God to be a holy wimp when times call for courage. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and the sulfur, which is the second death. Notice this, though. Nothing unclean, this is in 27, will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What is John's point? John is underscoring what Joel told us that there will be a day in which the words never again are true. It's not today, though. Sin everywhere today. Sin in my heart. Sin in your heart. Never again has not yet become fully realized. But one day, praise be to God, it will. 
Okay, so the banishment of sin. Now this next one, I can't wait to do this more fully when we get to the book of Revelation. But I, remember how Joel talked about the, the renewal of the land, right? With the waters fl- flooding out of the temple and, and watering the land of Shittim. John does something that's very curious that, that I, I think is glorious. And I wish I had more time to unfold this for you this morning. But thank, thankfully, we have plenty of time in our Revelation series. I want you to notice that John's description of heaven in chapter 21 and in chapter 22 looks a lot like the Garden of Eden. Have you ever noticed that? In fact, maybe for your devotions or your family worship time today, today's the Lord's Day, it would be good for you to begin to start identifying some of those connections between the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 and heaven in Revelation 21 and 22. Have you ever noticed the the details before? It's astounding. They're everywhere. Uh, Light coming from God as the ultimate and original source. We see that in Genesis and in Revelation. Uh, We see gold in both places. Uh, We see a river flowing through in both places. We see fruit-bearing trees in both places. And remarkably, and perhaps most notably of all, we see the tree of life in both places. If I were to ask you, where is the tree of life? Some of you would rightly say it's in the book of Genesis. Others of you would rightly say, no, it's in the book of Revelation. They're both true. Why is that? Because John's heaven is a restored and a completed and a perfected Garden of Eden. And it's not just back to its original condition. It's actually better because there's no serpent there to destroy anymore. Okay? And human beings won't be vulnerable to sin as Adam and Eve, our foreparents, were in the garden. Heaven is a perfected, bettered, glorious edition of the Garden of Eden. John makes that pretty clear, I think. Okay? And so then, what is the fourth connection between Joel 3 and Revelation 21? Well, it's the promise of the presence of God. It's unmistakable. Remember in Joel, it said God is going to dwell with his people in Zion? Well, look at Revelation Look at 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city. Okay, so there's, there's a, a, a discontinuity there, right? It's not all continuity. There's discontinuity as well. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why not? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then again, Look at verse uh, 4 of chapter 22. This may be my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face, praise God. And when you see his face, you're going to have one thought on your mind. You ready? And all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. When you see his face, it'll all be true. Praise God. Okay. So let's just wrap up our study as we prepare for next week together. I do want to mention a couple of applications for us by way of preparation that are going to help us when we begin Revelation next Sunday. Uh, there's a few things I think we've learned in the book of Joel that are going to be helpful to us. Let me give you three. So if you're taking notes, here comes three things that we've learned in Joel that we're going to apply when we study the book of Revelation. Number one, we should caution ourselves, shouldn't we, against over-literal interpretations. We've got to be careful about that. We learned that in the book of Joel. We have to be careful when we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, 
or poetry or song, okay, those genres, we very often encounter things like figurative language, figures of speech. We see things like metaphors and imagery and similes and even hyperboles, things like that. And so especially when we come to the book of Revelation, we have to be very careful that we don't over-literalize our interpretation of the book. Otherwise, we're going to have some weird kind of Marvel comic universe book of Revelation that's just going to be weird, right? So probably the clearest example where I think we learned about cautioning ourselves against over-literalized interpretation came at the very beginning of the book of Joel when we saw this description of the locust plagues themselves. Now go back with me to Joel chapter 1 and look at verse 6. Do you remember this? I know I already talked about this before, but I just want to remind you this. In Joel 1.6, it describes the locust plague and it says, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and it has fangs like a lioness. Pause right there. What did Joel do? Well, Joel took something real and literal, namely the locust plague, but he kind of souped it up, he kind of hyped it up by giving the locusts this unnatural ability of being described as having lion's teeth. Now, if you look at a locust, they don't really have much of visible teeth at all, okay? So what is he doing here? Is he talking about some strange, different animal? No, he's, 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 he's taking one thing and he's, he's amplifying its power using a very graphic um, over-stylized description of the locusts because they don't have fangs. And we see that and we're like, duh, duh. But then why is it that when we get to the book of Revelation and we see uh, locusts in chapter 9, only this time instead of combining their powers with lions, John the writer combines the power of locusts with scorpions, all of a sudden people kind of lose it and think we're talking about some sort of strange creature from a different dimension. No, that's not the point. Okay? And so prophetic language in apocalyptic literature, we have to guard ourselves against over-literalizing these images when we see them. We're going to have to be careful that we don't make that mistake because many people have, and I think embarrassingly so when they come to the book of Revelation. Okay, second thing we've learned from Joel that we're going to need to apply, and that is that um, Revelation is going to be stuffed filled, I mean stuffed filled like a Christmas stocking, okay? with images, types, promises, allusions, and language straight out of the Old Testament. He's constantly doing that, more so than any other book. John, the writer of Revelation, is going to be constantly and perpetually borrowing images from the Old Testament, reappropriating them into his own message, and the point is that you won't understand what John is saying if you are not familiar with the Old Testament referent. Does that make sense? Okay. So you're going you're to be way off track because the Bible interprets the Bible. And so when John uses all these kinds of figures of speech and language, normally our clue to interpreting them properly is simply go back to the Old Testament and see what the symbol means. Okay. We saw that a couple of times in the book of Joel. We saw Joel using the motif of the trumpet in chapter 2. We saw Joel talking about the stars in the sky and the sun being darkened. And remember I told you when we got to that line in, in 2.10 and 3.15 that when the sky goes dark, we're not necessarily talking about astrological events. It's not like the sun is going to extinguish somehow where the stars are going to literally fall from the skies. That's prophetic Old Testament language. Okay, We need to interpret that rightly. 
Uh, when Joel used the image of the sickle in the harvest and the wine press, again, John borrowed that directly. We saw that in Revelation chapter 14. And so over and over again, in our series in Revelation, if you're expecting me to kind of do newspaper theology where I'm finding every day the USA Today and I'm trying to point out events somewhere in the book of Revelation, we're way off already. Because John isn't preaching the USA Today edition from last weekend John is preaching commentary on the Old Testament. He's explaining these great redemption themes to us. And that's the third thing that we have to be ready for when we do Revelation is that we're going to see the gospel everywhere. The gospel is going to be everywhere in Revelation. Okay? And by the gospel, what I mean is the great themes of redemption. Namely, creation fall, sin, rebellion, Christ, atonement, faithfulness, perseverance, the persecution of God's people, pointing our hope towards that great day, and then finally God's marvelous and wonderful acts of redemption as he winds all history down and brings it to a just and a joyful conclusion for believers. And so when we come to the end of the book, Revelation 22, once again, we will agree with Julian of Norwich that all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.